Good morning. If you'd like to turn with me, we'll be reading this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. The Sermon on the Mount is, has been, the most preached on, taught on, commentated on, written about passage of the Bible since the early church for the last 2,000 years. No other, pa- no other passage of scripture has been more thought on and preached on and written about than the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was really Jesus's sort of manifesto on how those who are his true disciples should live their lives. The most famous of all his teachings, the one that's remembered the most of all, and frankly, I think the one that he intended to be remembered most of all. And we spent the fall, uh, last fall, uh, focusing on the preamble, in a sense. Uh, The the Sermon on the Mount has a, a preamble. It's the Beatitudes. And we looked at the Beatitudes throughout the fall, eight character traits of those who Jesus says are truly blessed, those who are actually flourishing in this world, those who will enter the kingdom of God, which is why they're blessed. It's why they're flourishing, because they have the perspective of the kingdom of God in their lives, the kingdom that they will inherit by the grace of God. So that's what we did in the fall. Now this winter, so we got through Advent and Christmas. Now this winter and into the spring, we're going to look at the sermon itself the actual body of the Sermon on the Mount. And in today's passage, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, in today's passage, Jesus is now in a transition. He had his little preamble, the Beatitudes. Now he transitions with an introduction into the sermon itself. And what Jesus is doing here in these verses is he's moving from principle to practice. Another way of saying that is Jesus is moving from this is who you are to this is how you ought to live as my disciples. Or as one, uh, one New Testament scholar puts it, uh, the Beatitudes are now about to be illustrated for the rest of the sermon in a real life, boots on the ground sort of way. And Jesus' remarks right here in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5, they're like a map key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You think about a map key, what, what does it help you to do? Interpret the map. If you wanna know things like elevation, where the water is, rivers, lakes, streams, oceans, marshland, uh, if you want to know what is a state route or an interstate route or a county route, if you want to know what is a railroad, uh, all of these things, uh, you need a key to the map in order to properly interpret the map. Well. The Sermon on the Mount has a map key, and it's the concept of righteousness. 
Now, when you hear the word righteousness, it's really important because the most important things to understand in the Sermon of the Mount are the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, same thing, and righteousness. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, it's all about righteousness. So when you hear the word righteousness, what comes to mind? I'm going to open it up to you. And I'm not looking for a Sunday school answer. You can, anything that you want, positive, negative, whatever. When you hear the word righteousness, what comes to mind? Being good. What comes to mind when you hear the word righteousness? Yeah. Integrity. Okay. Honest opinions. Honest answers. What came, what was the first thing that came into your mind when you heard the word righteousness? Yeah. An impossible standard. Yeah. Okay, the word right, right with God. Okay. Is there a hand on this side? Yeah. Holy rollers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Good. Any, any others? What comes to mind when you think of righteousness, Chris? Ah, yeah. A spinoff on it. Self-righteousness. Yes, that's one of the first things I thought of myself. Any others? What comes to mind when you think of the word righteousness? Godly living. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Great. Okay, so we would do our Lord Jesus and Matthew, who wrote this gospel, uh, a great disservice if we did not consider what righteousness means from the perspective of those who were sitting there on the mountainside listening to Jesus. They were mostly all Jews. How would the ancient Jews, the first century Jews, understand righteousness when they heard Jesus talk about it from the side of the mountain? So if you look back into the Old Testament, into the ancient Jewish scriptures, the ancient Jewish prophets understood righteousness in three senses. And this idea comes from the teacher John Stott, who I really think summarizes it very well. The Jewish scriptures understood righteousness first in a moral sense, holiness, okay, living rightly before God. It was the psalmist in Psalm 119 who said, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Jewish scriptures also understood the concept of righteousness in a social sense. Not only morally, but socially. It was not only holiness, righteousness was justice. It was living rightly, not only before God, but it was living rightly, according to God's standards, with others. Righteousness was doing right by everybody around you. It was Job who said, I put on righteousness. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Righteousness was holiness to the ancient Jews. Righteousness was justice to the ancient Jews. But there's another sense. You've heard me talk about this before. There's a third sense in the ancient Hebrew Bible where righteousness was understood legally. Righteousness was also, a, you don't see it as much, but it's there and it's maybe the most important sense of righteousness that you have in the Old Testament. 
righteousness took on a legal sense in the concept of being justified, where, where a sinner was declared righteous, was declared right by God himself. We find in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God, and what does Genesis tell us? And God credited that belief to Abraham as righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6. And then Jesus of Nazareth, not a professionally trained and cultured rabbi, uh, somebody with the lineage of David himself, yet the son of a carpenter, uh, Jesus comes along from Nazareth and he says this most amazing, outstanding statement, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been following along with us, he's already said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's already told us in the Beatitudes that these blessed ones will actually be persecuted in the world because they hunger and thirst for this righteousness. He will later say in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount that the thing we should seek more than anything else is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the map key to understand the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness. It's understanding that blessedness in God's eyes depends on what type of righteousness you possess. You want to enter the kingdom of God, you had better have the right type of righteousness. Now, in order to understand righteousness in Jesus' terms here, I have to talk about the law today, the law of God that you find in the Old Testament. I have to talk about the importance of the law and we need to understand it. Not only realize that it's important, but actually comprehend the Old Testament law. And we need to talk about how it's fulfilled. That's simply what we're going to talk about today. The importance of God's law, understanding God's law for ourselves, and finally, how God's law gets fulfilled. So God's law is so important, friends, that nobody and nothing can get rid of it ever. Jesus opens up by saying in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, the first century Jews would have understood the phrase, the law and the prophets as the whole Old Testament. That was their understanding. But more specifically, when they thought of the law, the Torah, they thought of, now get this, not just a bunch of rules and regulations, not just the Ten Commandments, not just dietary laws about what the ancient Jews could eat and couldn't eat. When the Jews of the first century heard the law, when they thought of the law, they thought of something far bigger and far more personal. They thought of God's covenant. They thought of God's relationship with his people where he described himself as their faithful, loving husband and Israel as his bride that he adored, that he would do anything to save and to recover. When they heard of the law, that's what they thought of a covenant relationship. And when they heard of the prophets, they thought of the actual prophets, the, the covenant interpreters, 
the people who came along and urged Israel to return back to this God who loved them. It's not just a manual of laws of the Old Testament. The Old Testament law, the Torah, is not just a manual. It was a history that's so important to understand what Jesus is saying now. The law and the prophets were a history of a broken relationship that God had promised to reconcile. So then Jesus says in verse 18, sorry about our technology today. I'm not really sure why we're having the problem. Um, We'll try and solve it by next week. Anyway, I'm just going to keep going, and if the slides work, they work. If they don't work, that's why the Lord gave us ears, Uh, and, and hopefully why he gave me a mouth. So we'll see what happens. So in the context of the law and the prophets being truly at the heart a story about a broken relationship and God's promise to restore that relationship, Jesus comes along and in verse 18, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota, not a dot. The old King James says, not a jot or a tittle. Uh, The NIV puts it in a simpler way that helps us understand it. Jesus is saying, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, now remember, Jesus claimed to be God. So, So we need to understand this is not simply a mere human being saying this. Jesus is saying, my law, my standards, my plans, and my promises aren't going anywhere. They're not loosening up a single bit. Now, sometimes we look at this ominously as though Jesus were threatening us. Don't you think that a single one of my commandments are going anywhere? Don't you think it? I would encourage you to look at this as a beautiful a profoundly beautiful thing that Jesus is saying here. This is like a husband telling his wife, I will never break my vows to you. Never. It is a wonderful thought to think that despite the hardness and the the horrors and sadness of humanity's worst movements, of humanity's tragic record, and of our potential for future evils, Despite all of that, it is a wonderful thing to consider that God will not allow his righteous standards to be destroyed. He will not allow his plan for humanity and all of creation to be swept aside to die. He's committed to it. Nothing and nobody can change that. So the Sermon on the Mount was really not Jesus' retake on the Old Testament and the law, not a retake not a new version of it. No, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's true take as the author of the law and the Old Testament. God in Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, this was what I meant. This is what I meant when I said, love me with all your heart and soul and strength. This is what I meant when I said to you, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lays it out for us right here. So Jesus opens his most famous address by emphasizing the importance of the law. So if you intend to follow Jesus, if you intend to follow the God of the Bible, you had better pay attention to more than half of what he said. Um, 
we must understand, and, and if you're not quite a Christian yet, I'm glad you're listening, because you get an open view. You get a seat at the family table. You're invited to dinner to see how the family interacts, how the father at the table speaks to his children. So I'm so glad you're here. We must understand God's law. We must understand it because we have to comprehend it. We have to comprehend it because we really actually have to apply God's law in our lives. This is why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's a foolish thing to ignore the Old Testament. I don't care what contemporary preachers and teachers are saying about throwing out the Old Testament. It is a foolish thing to throw it out and act like it's not there or like it's not important. Look, can you truly appreciate the Lord of the Rings if you haven't read The Hobbit? It's a great story, but you're going to be missing something. Can you truly appreciate Star Wars episodes 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 if you haven't seen episodes 1, 2, and 3? Now, I know that doesn't quite work because I think episodes 1, 2, and 3 were kind of bad movies. <laughs> but you still get the history. You still get the background. It still puts everything into the right perspective for you. Look, of course, People can become Christians by just reading, just hearing one page of the New Testament. By just reading or hearing one single verse of the Bible, people all over the world and throughout history have received the grace of God. But if you have the Old Testament or access to it, to neglect it is spiritually lazy. And even more so, it is disrespectful of Christ's Jewish heritage. God did choose a specific group of people through which to begin to work his salvation in human history. If we need help understanding it, and we do, we need each other. So is this what Jesus meant when he said in verse 19, oh, I'm glad you got it back up. We have an amazing pair of people here who are working very hard to make this happen. Thank you. Um, so when Jesus said in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, was he really saying, read your Old Testament? It's not what he was saying. When he says these commandments, he's referring to, get this, He's referring to the principles that he is about to teach in the sermon he is now introducing. Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Well, based on what he's already said in the preamble of the Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who will inherit the kingdom of God, which is what he's talking about? He will later say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, uh, verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this all leads me back to talking about righteousness. Entering the kingdom of heaven has to do with doing the will of our creator. Doing the will of our creator has everything to do with righteousness. The New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, he has a great commentary, and it's one of the commentaries I'm using for this series. He defines righteousness in a very helpful way. Righteousness is whole person. Now, when he says whole person, he means not only outward living, but the inward conditions and motivations of the heart. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. 
So righteousness is agreeing with and fulfilling God's law, God's covenant, God's promises. Agreeing with, but also fulfilling the law, the covenant, the promises of God. It was really critical for Jesus to emphasize the law. You know, people misunderstand the Bible by saying the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. Some people so misunderstood that that they created heresies that said the Bible's talking about two different gods. There is an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The theme of grace runs through all of the scriptures from Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation. And because of all the confusion that had gone before him and has gone after Jesus since he preached this Sermon on the Mount. It was critical for him at this point to emphasize the law because it was so misunderstood, because he was and still is misunderstood in what he has said. In verse 20, he concludes by saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, in the Greek, it's like greatly surpasses. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So really briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, the scribes were teachers of the law. The scribes were like, um, they were like the Bible scholars of their day. The Pharisees, there really is no contemporary analogy for Pharisees. Um, Monks doesn't quite cut it. Uh, the Pharisees were like professional fundamentalists, right? Professional fundamentalists were the Pharisees. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her children's Bible, which used to be our children's ministry curriculum a couple of years ago, she, she, she says, extra super holy people, <laughs> which sums them up. So Jesus is now declaring that despite their efforts, to keep the law, which they thought they were keeping and teaching everybody else to keep as they kept it. Jesus is saying they're missing it. They're missing it. If you're listening to them, if you're doing what they do, you're missing it. There are two great human sins. Sins against God's good and perfect law. The sin of fleeing from it and the sin of trying to attain it. Two great sins, and they have many, many manifestations throughout history, maybe even in our lives. Either fleeing from God's law or thinking you can attain it personally. People flee from God's law and form their own versions of morality and justice instead of it. Uh, think about atheists who even have their own moral code and sometimes very good moral code. Even atheists care to some degree about social justice in society. It is that they flee from the law of God and replace it with a law of their own. People also, on the other hand, try to attain by their own merit, by their own skill, by their own moral striving, as Buddha said before he died, um, attain righteousness by their own merit, attain God's law through their moral efforts, their social efforts. And the proof that people have always and still either flee from the law of God or try to attain it in their own strength, the proof of that, my friends, 
of these two great sins is that when God became a human being and finally visited us, we killed him. The Romans were in charge in Jerusalem when Jesus was executed. Uh, The Romans as Gentiles and pagans were classic law fleers. They had created a society and a system of justice and, and order that was quite frankly managing to take care of and supervise 25% of the world's population at the time. But it was in replace of the righteous requirements of God's law. The Jewish leaders, however, were law attainers. They weren't running from the law of God. They very much believed in it and thought they were fulfilling it and were teaching others to do the same. But when they saw Jesus, who represented the law of God, they killed him. So the the Romans and the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders came together. They hated each other, but they they conspired together to kill the only human being who had ever kept the law of God. Fleeing from it, trying to attain it themselves. When Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, He was talking about those who know they have not, they cannot, they never will in their own strength keep the law of God. Those who are spiritually poor are those who know they are not righteous in and of themselves, but they desperately need to be. And so this is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. To enter the kingdom of heaven, we must, you must, friends, possess a righteousness that is greater than humanity's best attempts to be righteous. You must possess a righteousness that is greater than your best attempts to be the best person you think you can be. The best person that the people in the world who are important to you, whose opinion you think matters most, think you should be. You must possess a greater righteousness, a righteousness that far exceeds the best religion and social justice can offer. The good news is that God's law has been kept by somebody. The good good news is that that person will finally fulfill the law of God for all eternity. Remember what I said earlier that the law was, Jesus said, the law is not going anywhere. It's not loosening up a single bit. Jesus made sure of that himself. The apostle Paul looked at God's righteousness in a very helpful way. And so much of Christianity is indebted to how Paul in the New Testament described righteousness. It's not what Matthew was talking about, but Paul brings a new perspective into it that we must understand. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, the law's author himself became one of us and submitted himself to the very law that he had established and he kept it perfectly. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus, as the Son of Man, loved 
his heavenly father with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus fulfilled the, more, the, the law from a moral sense in holiness. And Jesus fulfilled the law in a social sense as justice. Jesus lived rightly before others. He, ex- he displayed God's perfect righteous justice in his dealings with all men and women and children. Now, did Jesus fulfill the law in a legal sense? Was it just morally? Was it just socially? Because if it was just moral and social, we'd say, what an amazing prophet. What an amazing leader that we can follow. No, he also fulfilled it legally. He substituted himself for guilty sinners who had tried to attain righteousness on their own merit, who had tried to flee and avoid and get away from God's righteousness as much as they could, Jesus substituted himself for those who were guilty and paid their penalty. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 could say, and this is what the gospel is. He could say, despite God's righteous justice that is coming against humanity for our sin of stuffing the truth about God, Paul said, and this is the good news, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul said, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now he's talking about Jewish and Gentile Christians. That's the context. He's saying all of them have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who put God forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, the gospel, the good news tells us the righteousness that exceeds is Christ's righteousness. Literally, the righteousness that exceeds is Jesus' righteousness. It is a unique brand of righteousness that is second to none, except no imitations, because none will work. Jesus' righteousness is the righteousness that you cannot attain by yourself. It is the righteousness, I beg you, that you must not flee from if you've been trying to evade it. It is the righteousness that God has offered you as his gift, his loving gift for you to receive. Blessedness in God's eyes depends on this righteousness. This is the type of righteousness we need to possess. It must be received as a gift. It must be taken and lived out by faith. People don't justify you. You don't even justify yourself, Paul would say in another place. Only Jesus can justify us. Only his opinion matters the most. And when we fail to keep God's righteous law, if we are in Christ, as every believer, every blessed one is, God sees us as he sees Christ. The legal justification that Christ earned in this life, that he paid for in his death, that he secured with his resurrection, includes you, my friend. Your name is there. His righteousness has robed you like a garment. 
So seek that righteousness. Seek the only righteousness that's able to fulfill God's law and able to save your soul if you have not yet. And if you have, rejoice, friends. Rejoice in the only righteousness that has made you a child of God. You're going to go back and say, oh, look at what a good person I am. Look at how I fixed those slides, that projector today. Look at how I preached such a good sermon. Look at how I baked those wonderful brownies. Look at how I taught those kids. Look at this. Look at this. Look at me against them. You keep doing that, you are damning yourself. You are condemning yourself because your righteousness cannot achieve the standards of God's law. Hide in the righteousness that Christ earned himself and has given to you as a gift. Hide in that righteousness. And when other people want to accuse you and say, you're not all that. You're not that intelligent. You're not that educated. You're a mess. I'm better behaved than you are. You voted for the wrong person. You say nasty things on Facebook. You have the wrong car. You like the wrong movies and the wrong authors. You have hurt me deeply, and I will never trust you again. When all of these things happen, hide in the righteousness of Christ. Nobody and nothing, no one's opinion can touch you. Don't use that as an excuse to act like a buffoon. Because the moral law still stands. Jesus wants you to love God. Jesus wants you to love your neighbor if you do the opposite, are you a blessed one? Does that show any proof that the grace of God has changed you? That the righteousness of Christ has robed you? If the righteousness of Christ robes you, then live in righteousness. And when you fail to uphold God's perfect and good law, remember there is one who stands in heaven who pleads for you like the best lawyer ever who says, I have taken their place and paid their penalty. And the father says, yes, they are righteous because of what my beloved son in whom I am well pleased has done for them. So when you sin and when you struggle and when you make stupid mistakes, even on purpose, and when people offer you an opinion of yourself that really stinks and makes you feel shame and makes you feel guilt, remember there is a protection that is greater than any protection, any bonded steel, any, any video game halo of supersonic strength, there is something in the universe far greater that holds you, friend. It is the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we follow you through this sermon on the mount, show us how you intend us to live. Thank you that you have showed us you lived this life yourself. We do not live it to earn your Father's approval. You did that. We live it to become more like you. We live it because we love you, Lord Jesus, and want your life to impact ours, want your righteousness to be seen in us. We live by your grace, Lord Jesus. We live in your righteousness. Amen.